0: Amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is writing to a group of people in Thessalonica that um, they've accepted the gospel. And so as Paul is writing to them, he's, he's touching on subjects and capturing things that where this letter really only makes sense if you're a person who has accepted the gospel, that God has come. Not to bring judgment and wrath and to be domineering, but to bring forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to all people. Regardless of what they've done or what they've said or acts they've committed or things they've thought or, or things they did not do. We have a God who's come to bring reconciliation to himself, to all people, no matter what they've been through, what they've done, what they've said, what they've thought. And then Paul will talk about over and over again that we are saved, not by the things you have done, but by the things that Jesus has done. And you're saved by the faith that you have in that, that if you call Jesus king and that you believe that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. Not because of anything you've done or scripture you've memorized or things you've Done with sincerity. It's all because of what Jesus has done. And finally, what Paul will harp on over and over again is now that we have been saved, you should be living a life worthy of the gospel. You should be living a life worthy of that God. The story is not if you live a life worthy of the gospel, then you can be saved and then you can receive the gospel. Instead, it's receive the gospel, be saved now transform yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of the gospel. And so as we continue with Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're in the context of Paul is speaking to believers who have already accepted Jesus as king, and now he's urging them, now walk in a manner worthy of Jesus more and more. Wherever you're at, however committed you are or how devoted you are, you could do more, a little bit more. If it's zero, if it's 95, you could do a little bit more. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I just broke into three sections. I think the first section is following Jesus more and more in the midst of cultural issues. The second is following Jesus more and more in brotherly love. And last, it's following Jesus more and more with hope and looking forward to the day that our king returns. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 starts like this. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instructions from us about how you must live and please God, as you are in fact living, that you do so more and more. So at my house... My wife is someone who is phenomenal at envisioning things. She can see things that I can't see. She's an artist. And so we have some, we we play certain roles in our house. My wife will start projects and my role is to finish projects. Have you guys ever felt that as men? But here's the problem with me. I'm not the projects guy. My dad is. I'm not so much to where... My DIY projects tend to look like the guy in this video. If you want to find a stud, you could just drill holes in quarter-inch intervals until you feel resistance, then you can mark it. That's the stud. That tends to be my house project scenario, or I just call my dad and my dad goes, you're doing what? Why would you do that? Well, my wife had an idea. So that's a lot of how I do projects. So what happened is my wife got these towel hangers and she put three of them in the kid's bathroom and she put them where they looked really good. There was no stud around those, right? But they looked really good. And what happens is they're in the kid's bathroom. Kids never approach a towel and lift it off the hanger. Kids are gonna yank that bad boy until the towel comes down and the the hanger's across the room, right? So I let that happen for about a year and a half. And last Monday, my, my daughter got out of the bath. She pulled the towel down and it fell on the ground. And I thought, you know, what? I'm just going to fix it. Yeah, good on me. So what I did is I started, I had this idea. I'm going to get this piece of wood. And it's going to be one of the nice looking pieces of wood at, at Home Depot. Not a two by four. I'm not a millionaire, but just you know, like a nice thin piece of wood. And I'm going to hang it on the wall. And I'm going to put the three, I'm going to attach that to the studs. And then I'm going to put the three hangers, and it's going to look really good. And so I'm measuring stuff, and my wife comes in, and she sees what I'm doing, and she gets excited, you know, because I have the tape measure in hand, and that means good things. And so she comes up, and she goes, what are you doing? And so I explained to her the plan, and she goes, oh my gosh, I love that plan, because I just got my hair done, and my hair lady, she did the trim of her bathroom in that same wood. Oh, wouldn't our bathroom look so cool if they matched? And I go yeah, okay, yeah, I could see that, all right, so she talks me into it, and I'm taking the trim off, all the trim is off now, and she comes in, and she goes, oh, that, this is going to look so good, I'm like, I know, right, I'm so excited about it, she goes, here's the thing, though, just to think about, I've never been in love with this tile, and I go, (laughs) well, what's wrong with the tile? She goes, there's nothing wrong with the tile. I just think when you put the new trim in, it's going to clash. And I go, well, what should we do? And she goes, I saw there's this white tile on clearance at Home Depot right now. I'm like, how do you just know that? And so I tear out the tile. So now I'm out the tile, I'm out the trim, and I I'm, I'm take all my measurements. I know what I have to get. I go to Home Depot. I get all the wood. I get the tile, the mortar, the grout. I come home and I put it all in the bathroom. I'm getting ready to go. And my wife, she's coming down the hallway and she says, hey, let's talk about the bathtub. And I lock the door. <laughs> you know, we're cutting it right there. All right. For me, my wife knows me. If she comes to me with a list of stuff and she's like, here's all the things I'd like to see you get done. I'm going to look at and I go, I'm, I don't know who you think you married, but I'm not the tile guy. I've never done that before. I don't think it's going to turn out well. Let's let the next homeowners do that. I think they'll do a great job. But my wife knows if I've committed to something, if I already got the tools out, I've already got my mind in a space where I'm gonna be working on a project, she knows she can ask just a little bit more and probably get a yeah. And then she knows maybe I can ask a little bit more and get a yeah. Maybe I can ask a little bit more. I don't know if you've noticed it, but I've seen this work out in other places in my life too. Like when I was at college, I'd have a professor say, okay, you need to write a 15-page paper at the end of this term on this subject. And if you've been in those classes, you go yeah, I'm gonna look at that towards the end of the term. Like the the end of term is an eternity away and right now things are good. I'm gonna worry about that later. And then it's 12 hours till it's due and you go, okay, it's time to start working on this bad boy. You know, the hardest part is just getting started. That if you can get started on that thing, it's easier to expand and to do more and to get more. I think that same thing is true in our walk with Jesus. That regardless of where we are at, we could do a little bit more. You might be someone who you've got, zero devotional life, zero prayer life. You got zero time where you just set aside to spend with Jesus and to, to read God's word and to listen to what God has to speak in your heart. Paul is saying, that's fine. Wherever you're at, it's good to do a little bit more and a little bit more. I'm someone where I listen to someone like, and I work with Matt Heverly. And so I go, Matt, how was your morning? He goes, great, man. I got up at 3 a.m. I spent an hour in the word, an hour in prayer, and an hour in meditation listening. I go, I'm going to do that. And so I, I get on my phone, and I put the kids to bed, and I set the alarm. And when I wake up, I go, not today. And I hit it. Next thing I know, the sun's up, my kids are running around, and I've lost all that time. So maybe you're like me, where you, maybe you can't do an hour get up an hour early and spend that time with Jesus, but you might be able to dial the the clock back just five minutes. Maybe I could just give five minutes. If I could set aside just five minutes to seek the Lord, to listen to God, maybe I'll see increase in my life and make that a habit to where maybe I can give God just a little bit more. Maybe I could do 10 minutes. Maybe I could do 15 minutes. Maybe it can't be in the morning because maybe you have children Maybe it could be when you go to work or when you drop the kids off or at some point, maybe it's late at night, you can just find time to set aside for God. It doesn't matter how much it is. God just wants more and more of us. I think we see it in like John chapter six. Wherever you choose to give to God, we have a God who's faithful to increase it and to multiply it. In John chapter six, you know the story. It's 5,000 men with their wives and their children have come to hear Jesus teach. There are couples who have no kids, but also the homeschool families have come who each have 12 kids. So this entire crew has come to listen to Jesus and Jesus is teaching them and the people are compelled and they're staying. And Jesus turns to Philip and goes, Philip, what should we feed all these people? And Philip goes, if I had six months worth of money on me and Chick-fil-A across the street, I couldn't feed all these people. Jesus, I don't know what you want us to do. But there's a little boy and he gives five loaves of bread and two fish to the disciples. They bring it to Jesus. OK, Jesus, what can we do with this? And so Jesus takes it. He breaks it up and he prays over it. And I'm not convinced That what happened is what happened in the movies where Jesus brings the basket down and they're full of bread and fish. I think that's a little inconsistent with how Jesus does things in other stories. I think what probably happened is a little bit more like when Jesus first met Peter and they're on the boat together. And Peter's been spending all night trying to catch fish and he can't catch it. And Jesus says, Okay, Peter, throw your net in at the wrong time of day. And Peter has to look at the crowd and see his co-workers, maybe some family, some friends and make a decision Am I going to obey Jesus and risk being embarrassed in front of family and friends and strangers and co-workers? Or am I going to protect my own respect and and not being embarrassed and not wanting to be shamed and not be obedient to Jesus? And he throws the net in and every net that he throws in gets filled by Jesus with fish because Jesus is God. I think that same thing happened with the baskets, that Peter was given a basket And Peter looked in the basket, and he saw some torn up fish, and he saw some torn up bread. And he looked at 5,000 people. If you look at the chairs in this room, there's 1,000 chairs. Multiply that by five, that represents each family. And so Peter's holding this. He's looking. And Jesus goes, go feed them with that. He goes, okay, 5,000 strangers. I'm going to run out pretty quick. Okay, this is how I think it went. He goes to the first family. He goes, hey, would you guys aren't hungry, are you? And he goes, I'm starving. And Peter goes, okay. Well, I got some bread and I got some fish. Would you be interested in either of those? And he goes, I'd love both. He goes, okay, you're not good at listening. So he gives some bread. He gives some fish. You're not great on social cues. And as he goes to the next family, he goes, hey, can I just have one more piece of fish? You know, my son is, he's a grown boy. And Peter goes, man, I'd love to. And when he looks in his basket, there's a little bit more fish in there than there was before. He goes, did John give up and give me his fish? No, he's still giving fish. So he he gives the man just a little bit more fish. Goes to the next family. Hey, man, would you like fish or or bread and he goes I'd love some and when Peter looks the basket's a little heavier and there's a little bit more fish and bread in there he gives that to the guy goes to the next person would you like bread and fish and he goes sure and so there's more and the basket's getting heavier as he goes down the line and there's just more and more bread more and more fish till finally comes to a family and he says hey we have bread and we have fish are you guys hungry and they say yes we love the fish but we're gluten intolerant and Peter says you know what This isn't Burger King. You don't get to have it your way. You can set it aside and just gives them the bread and the fish because it comes to a point where it gets so heavy, they have to set it down and just pass it out. I come to that conclusion because at the end of that story in John 6, Jesus tells his disciples, go get all that's left over. And they fill to overflowing 12 baskets full of all that's left over. I think what happened is Jesus sent his disciples out with a little bit and told them to give whatever you've got. And as they gave what they had, Jesus continued to increase and to give more and to give more till finally they were overly excited to give. I need to keep giving to you because this is getting too much for me. I believe we have that same God who gives that kind of increase to us when we're faithful to him in the tiniest areas of our life. Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, the one who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. God is developing us into people who will rule and reign with him in eternity. And he wants to see people who will be faithful in just the tiniest areas of their life. And when he sees us, he'll say, oh, well done. You've been faithful over that little bit. I'm going to let you rule over much. There's so many areas in our life where maybe we're at zero, we can give God just five minutes, give God just a little bit of time and see how our God gives the increase. James says, we have a God that if you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. You have the opportunity every single day to test that. Say, okay, God, I'm gonna set aside time for you today. I'm gonna seek you today. And then today, as I go into conversations with my wife or conflicts at work, I pray that you will guide those conversations because I wanna be centered on you and what you have for me. So give what you got. Verse two, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will that you become holy. Have You ever wondered what God's will is for your life? He lays it out right here. This is God's will that you become holy. God's will for his people has always been that. That you become a holy people. Exodus chapter 19 lays out that God has this expectation that his people are going to be set aside, different from every other community, every other culture. They're to be completely contrasted. That when other nations look at them and the way that they worship, the way that they treat their spouse, the way they raise their kids, every other culture goes, that is so different than what we do. God has always wanted people that is so other than what's happening in culture or what's happening in other kingdoms because God's kingdom is severely different. God's kingdom is completely upside down from every single system, every single way that the world works. God's kingdom is ran by the poor, the broken, the outcast, the forgotten, and Jesus elevates them and entrusts them to do his work and to spread his message. So holiness for Paul, it's it's a main theme here that we have called to be people who are holy. You know, for Paul, he was raised in a system where you would have to go to the temple and bring your sacrifices to a priest who would then offer those sacrifices to God. And the temple was set up to where there was an outer court, there was an inner court, and there was a holy of holies. And only a priest who had engaged in certain purification rites, lived a life just focused on purity and holiness, would be allowed into that room. It would be such an honor to get to be allowed to go into the holy of holies. And so Paul has grown up in this system, in this understanding of following God, that holiness is, is huge, it's so important. And Jesus, what he tells the woman at the well and what Paul knows is there's a time coming. Jesus says when he's alive, there's a time coming when people will not worship in a temple, but they'll worship in spirit and truth because Jesus is gonna move that temple. Now, you and I know that God does not choose a specific place and say, this is where I'll meet with my people and only here is where my people will meet with me. Instead, God has given his Holy Spirit to every person who accepts Jesus to be the place where God meets with you, that God literally indwells in you. And so for Paul, looking at a system where there's such this expectation of holiness, if you're going to be allowed into that, have that access to God, now that we've been given so much more, isn't there such a higher expectation for us? Isn't there such a higher expectation that God would desire people, if God's going to entrust that to us, to live out that kind of life? And so Paul is looking at the culture going on in Thessalonica. They have a culture very much unlike ours. And he addresses their big issue right here, that you keep away from sexual immorality. That's not an issue for Americans, not an issue for us at all. That that each of you, verse four, know how to possess his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. In this matter, no one should violate the rights of his brother or take advantage of him. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these cases, as we also told you earlier and warned you solemnly. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Consequently, the one who rejects this is not rejecting human authority, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There becomes one big issue that Paul decides needs to be addressed for the believers living in Thessalonica, and it's sex. Keep away from sexual immorality. Possess his own body in holiness and honor, not in lustful passions like those who do not know God. There's an issue with sex in Thessalonica. The culture viewed sex in a way that was outside of how God views sex. And so there's this word, it's sexual immorality, that he brings up. Here's the issue. So the Bible defines marriage as a public, permanent, exclusive Covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. And anything outside of that, the Bible would call sexual immorality. So marriage is public. It's in front of everybody. This is the one I'm committing my life to. That's why you invite friends and family and people that will keep you accountable to that and, and celebrate that with you. It's permanent. I had my grandma come up to me right after I proposed to my wife. And we were engaged, and she said, Justin, we go back several generations in our family, and no one's ever been divorced. And I go, Okay. And she goes, So, and we promise when we talk to our spouse, till death do us part. And I go, Okay. And I'm not joking. (laughs) She says, You will die before you leave her. And I go, Okay. (laughs) It's supposed to be permanent, that this is a lifelong commitment that I am making. It's exclusive. No one else is invited in to that relationship to partake in things that are just between a married couple. It's covenantal. It's built on promises, and there's expectations in that on both sides, and it's between one man and one woman. And so any sexual behavior or attitude or activity outside of that the Bible would call sexual immorality. So that's everything from looking at someone lustfully to pornography, to adultery, to polyamorous relationships. All of those things, and homosexuality, all of those things would be classified as sexual morality. And God's will, right here, says be holy. You need to, my people need to keep away from those things. And those are things the world says, this is really tempting, This is really good. This is fine. And I work with youth a lot. So I I work with zero through 18. I work with the kids at the youngest age where you say, okay, here's what we should do. Then in the middle schoolers, you say, okay, here's what I want you to do. And in the high schoolers where you say, stop doing that thing. That tends to be how it breaks down. And I know when I talk with youth about things like sexual immorality, the question is not, okay, then how do I pursue God in holiness? Instead, it's, well, where's that line? Where's the line? How close can I get before it's a bad thing? Yeah, that's, that's how they view it. And it's like that's pretty intelligent of you to phrase it that way. So I use Genesis 39. And I talk about this guy named Joseph, where Joseph is sold as a slave, and he works with this guy named Potiphar. And everything he does is just faithful. He's faithful in every single thing. He's consistent in his obedience to the Lord, and that's causing every area in his life to flourish. And it gets to a point where Potiphar entrusts Joseph with everything he owns, to where Joseph even says, there's not one thing withheld from me. I can engage in any activity. I can enjoy anything that Potiphar owns, except for one thing, And that's Potiphar's wife, because that's his exclusive relationship, not mine. And what happens is as Joseph is working and doing his job, Potiphar's wife continues to engage him. So Joseph is right now in a culture without any crew around him who follows his God, any crew around him that follows his worldview, that God has this high expectation, this high standard for marriage. He's in a culture where sex is lowered. Hey, it's just an appetite. You can do whatever you want to do. And this woman keeps pursuing him day after day until finally all the men are gone at one point and his wife grabs him by his jacket. Potiphar's wife grabs Joseph by his jacket and says, sleep with me. And Potiphar ducks out of his jacket and jumps out the window. So the question is not how close can you get to sin? It's what do you need to do to get as far away from that as possible. What's causing you to stumble that you just need to be, okay, I need to get rid of that. And here's the thing that happened with Joseph that we have to realize and know. Obedience to Jesus cost him because he was obedient and did not do what the world wanted him to do. He was thrown into jail. He lost years of his life. He lost all respect from his coworkers and people who knew him. Being obedient to Jesus may cost you. It may cost you friends. It may cost you relationships. And I know for us, we can, we can tend to rationalize things. You know, well, well okay, I, I didn't sleep with her. I just looked at stuff online, all right? It's not like I engaged in that thing. Okay, well, every time that you watch that video or click on that thing, it, 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 it pays for ad revenue. It it monetizes the program how many views they got okay well how about this i was just sent that picture i didn't even participate in the online stuff no one's making any money off of that this is just me this woman doesn't even know i don't see the big deal the issue well it gets brought up in verse six where it says no one should break this rule or cheat a fellow Christian in this area, because the Lord is the avenger. When Joseph is talking to Potiphar's wife, interestingly, he says, I cannot sleep with you and sin against, not Potiphar, not you, I can't do this and sin against my God. You and I were created as image bearers of God, that if you went into the Holy of Holies, you would see the the Ark of the Covenant, but there was no idol there that represented a physical manifestation of God. Every other pagan religion, if you went into their temple, there'd be a physical manifestation of God called an idol. Our God never had that. Instead, you and me were supposed to be that, image bearers of God, that we reflect God into everything that we do, and we reflect God in all that. He should be honored and respected and cared for and loved and held up. And when we choose to engage in that kind of lustful or pornographic activity, you're actually actually lowering an image bearer of God to an object for your own sexual gratification. You're cheating that person that God has created and held to such a high standard and made them less than what they are, and God is the avenger in that matter. God says, that's my kid. That's my daughter. That's not how she's supposed to be looked at. That's not what we do here. God says he's the avenger in it. So the Thessalonikans, they had a serious issue con- concerning sex. And Paul is just saying to them, you need to flee that. You need to get rid of that. If it's not pornographic and it's actually a- adultery or it's-, it's boyfriend, girlfriend, sex outside of marriage robs someone of something, the future spouse of something that belongs to them. And for the Thess- Thessalonicans, they had so lowered sex or, or or altered sex that they had in their pagan temples, this ritualistic, pagan, um, divine prostitution. So you could go to this area and have sex with this person and appease that fertility God. Jesus is laying out, Paul is laying out, following Jesus has a different weight on things than the world has. The world looks at something and says, this isn't a big deal. And Jesus says, actually, in my economy, that's a huge deal. I don't know if you have ever seen or heard of, I hope you've never heard of it, this app called Tinder. And on Tinder, what it does, you can swipe on somebody and then you can choose if both of you swipe on somebody to engage in a conversation with that person. And then you could choose to meet up and go on a date and whatever. And at the end of your year, they'll send you a report. And I saw one where it said, how many swipes led to how many conversations led to how many meetups, led to how many dates, and then they have a category that led to how many casual sex. Because that's how low bar it is, just casual sex. You have an appetite, just partake in it. And Jesus says, no, for my people, we're gonna have a high expectation, a high bar on that. We're gonna have a contrasted community, a group of people who pursue holiness and to be set apart, and that's not something that my people do. And so doing that, fleeing from those things. There are relationships where lines keep getting crossed that either need to be immediately moved towards marriage or broken off. There might be some cell phones that need to get just get thrown into the lake and have a dumb phone. Wherever you're at with that in walking with Jesus, there's there's a more and more Okay, how can I follow Jesus more and more in this? Jesus, convict me of those things that are wicked in my heart, bring them to light and help me purge them, help me get rid of them. I don't want to live that way anymore. I know you've got bigger plans for me. So we are called to follow Jesus more and more in the midst of cultural issues. And then he follows, he continues with, follow Jesus more and more in brotherly love. Verse nine, now on the topic of brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you are practicing it toward all the brothers and sisters in Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. To aspire to lead a quiet life. To attend to your own business and to work with your own hands. As we commanded you, in this way, you will live a decent life before outsiders and not be in need. The Bible says that when you accept Jesus, you get adopted into God's family, that you're able to approach God as your father and that you have an eternal inheritance in his kingdom. That inheritance is shared with every other man and woman who follows Jesus and calls him Lord. And the way that we're supposed to look at those people are as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Jesus had a brother. Jesus had a brother and his name was James. And I just think how funny that is. Like, I like to think about Jesus's growing up life and wonder how the dynamics worked. Like Mary's just at home and she's sewing something or cleaning something, and and a young James walks in. He's six years old, and he goes, Mom! And Mary goes, Oh, what's going on, James? He goes, Jesus and I were arguing. And Mary just goes, James, spank yourself and go to your room because you're in the wrong. Right? Like, what, what is it like growing up with Jesus? And so James, Jesus's brother, he actually grows up not believing that Jesus is God. There's a time in the Bible where it says that Jesus's own family thought he was crazy for going around and teaching the things that he was teaching and doing the things that he was doing. This is a crazy person. And it's one of the most amazing facts in the Bible that James would later write a letter saying, yeah, my brother, he's God. All right. How many of you have siblings, And you would never say, you know what? He might be God. Like I would testify in court that my brother might be Satan. I have some compelling evidence, all right? Beyond a shadow of a doubt at least. But I would never say, you know what? This person might be God. Because people fail and there's frustration and there's hurt and there's irritation and brothers can rub on you wrong unlike anyone else. But here's the truth of it is at the end of the day, Person's still your brother, right? That I know with my brother, I can get in heated arguments about politics, about COVID, about life, about the way you're supposed to live your life, about what you're supposed to do in certain situations. Heated arguments. At the end of the day, he's still my brother, who I still want the very best for, who I still lift up in prayer, that I still pray that God would change his heart and change the way he sees things. And I still I value him so, so, so much. You and I are supposed to do that same exact thing with every single person who calls Jesus Lord because there's this baseline. There's this baseline that's true that you will spend eternity with this person. So it doesn't make any sense to sever relationship here in this life over something that's not gonna be eternal. There's too many people, I think, right now who love Jesus but are willing to permanently divide relationships over topics that are just affecting us these few years. That won't be here in 10 years. That won't be here in 20 years. That won't be a topic in eternity. That maybe we're allowing things that aren't such a huge deal to become too much of a big deal. That's why it says lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Lead a decent life before outsiders and not be in need. I think something that's really unattractive to outsiders is when there's friendly fire. Why would they want to be a part of a group that constantly just attacks each other and undermines each other and says bad things about each other because of a belief about a political system or a healthcare issue or whatever? Like, I don't know if you know this, but the political environment and culture that Jesus was alive in is phenomenally worse than anything you and I have ever experienced. And Jesus had some skin in the game. He had reason to be loud and vicious against the current political system because he had a cousin named John. He's John the Baptist, who Jesus said, there's been no one like this guy, no prophet like this guy. He he thought really highly of John. And one of the political rulers of the time took John for doing the right thing, doing a good thing, and standing up against sexual immorality, and cut John's head off. After that, Jesus did not lead rallies and he did not um, get people to riot and get people to come against the bad political system. Jesus instead solely fixated on and focused on his kingdom. This world is broken. You and I can disagree on politics, we can disagree on COVID, we could disagree on if you should homeschool your kids or put them in public school, we can disagree on a whole lot of different stuff, but what we really need to be focused on and talking about and sharing is Jesus's kingdom, because when Jesus was here in the midst of an intense cultural issue, political issue, the thing that he thought with the short amount of time I have on this earth, what should I spend my focus and on my energy sharing with people? It's going to be God's kingdom. It's going to be that we have a God who's come to redeem. Yeah, this world is broken. Good thing we have a system that we're heading to that's so much better. Yeah, leadership is corrupt and there is broken people at all levels. Thank goodness that we have a good king coming who does everything right and sees everything Justly, and who so aspires for justice that he will make sure that everything is accounted for. Oh, that makes it so I have to worry about so much less. Trusting in a God who sees everything that's wrong and is gonna make sure it's all accounted for, doesn't that take such a weight off of my shoulders? That now I don't have to get even on Facebook and I don't have to make sure that my point is taken across because I know my God's got it handled. Instead of worried about those things, maybe I could worry more about God's kingdom and getting more people to see how beautiful Jesus is because when they come into God, when they come into a relationship with God and they follow him more and more, God might be able to change their heart and maybe God needs to change my heart. Maybe my heart is wrong in some of these things. I'm not so sure of myself that I'm too big to say, you know what, maybe there's a log in my eye while I'm worried about the speck in theirs. As we follow Jesus, I think we're called to be open to that. Jesus, am I wrong in this? I think you and I as believers of Jesus are supposed to be following him more and more in brotherly love. And today, I think there's lots and lots of opportunity to show that. Does that mean that you can't rebuke your brother? I rebuke my brother like crazy. But there's always the open door for us to still be friends and still have conversation and still have Thanksgiving dinner and still when his car breaks down, he'll call my dad who will let me know But there's still this, like, there's the openness there, right? There's still this, hey, I need help with something. That door is open because he knows I love him. I care about him. He's my brother. We have to remember that with each other. We have to remember that with other people online or in person who love Jesus. That's my brother. I love that person. I care for them. I want the very best for them. And finally, we need to follow Jesus more and more in hope knowing that our king is going to return. Verse 13, Now we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel. Very similar to that voice. (laughs) (laughs) And with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left, will be suddenly caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Every single chapter in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, ends with, Jesus is coming back soon. Do you have any idea how much our lives would be changed how much better we'd be able to face conflict and hard conversations and pain and struggle and difficulty if we approached everything with this idea of, but Jesus is coming back soon. Doesn't that just make everything so much better? Make everything so much brighter? We live in a world where everyone knows that the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die. That's why everyone stayed home for a few months to keep people from dying. If you go to Edgewater, you stayed home for three days. It's cool. But everyone stayed home because the most fearful thing, the worst thing that could ever happen is that you die. For the believer, the way that you look at death is Jesus has conquered it. That if anything, it's victory. That everything on the other side of death is only better and better. And yeah, it's really, really hard when someone you love and is close to is no longer here with you. But the way that we look at that and the way the world looks at that is so much different. The world would look at that and say, there's nothing. It's a closed door. It's over. You and I would look at that and say, I'm going to see them fully restored with King Jesus and all the glory that Jesus promises to his believers. There's this, this phrase used in the Bible that I'm really fond of, and it's called palingenesia. And it's this new genesis, it's new beginning, that when you and I see God, you and I will be fundamentally transformed. That as you go through life here, there's gonna be a lot of conflict, and a lot of struggles, and a lot of issues, and a lot of hurt, and a lot of disappointment that's gonna give you physical scars, It's going to give you emotional scars. It's going to give you mental scars. It's going to give you spiritual scars. And you can bandage those things and you can make them better. Right before I came up here, Matt said, I would tell you break a leg, but I'm afraid you might do it. Because a few months ago, I was riding on a one wheel and (laughs) it was just dumb. Yeah, but and I broke my leg. (laughs) And what I did is I went to the doctor. The doctor cut me open. He put a plate in there and seven screws and he made it all better. I can run on it, I can walk on it, I can jump on it, and it's all better, but deep inside, that'll always be a little bit broken, and there'll be a scar from it that will never go away. You and I, when we get to see Jesus, when he does the new Genesis, the palingenesia, those scars won't be there. That everything will be made new. That everything that was wrong, that brought you hurt, that brought you pain, that you thought, That's, that was so evil, that thing that happened to me, Jesus will make it untrue. It won't be true that that ever happened. The plate that's in my leg will be untrue. That's not there anymore. It'll be gone. That the only scars that are in heaven will be on Jesus that we will see what it cost our God to purchase us and redeem us back to him. Following Jesus, it might cost us. It might cost us to be in a situation to be in front of people, to stand up for what I know is right, what I know is true, what my God wants me to say, what my God wants me to do, and it might put me in a situation where I could be at risk of embarrassing myself in front of fans, family, friends, coworkers or strangers. We might be in a situation where you are, are having to be the bigger man and fall on your sword and choose to love your brother instead of have the last word and be the right person. But if you and I have the perspective of, my king is coming back soon, and he's gonna make every wrong right, and I have a God who is faithful that if I can be faithful myself in the little things, he'll be faithful to entrust me with greater things, that he will multiply the little bit that I can give him. If I could just give him a little bit He'll multiply in me so much, so much more than I can begin to describe or ever have hoped for. So I can pursue that God. I can draw closer to him. I can trust in him that he's gonna continue to develop in me who he wants me to be. So if I can encourage you guys in anything this week, it would be if you have a relationship with Jesus, but you haven't begun in a prayer life with him, or haven't begun in in seeking him in the morning in his word and waiting to hear from him, I would encourage you to just spend five minutes. Just find five minutes. Five minutes when you're not on social media. Five minutes when you're not having to text somebody. Five minutes, it could be in the morning, could be in the middle of the day, could be the end of the day. Just five minutes where you can seek Jesus and see if Jesus won't make good on that time. If Jesus won't redirect your day or alter conversations or change the way that you see life or cause you to be a more calm, less anxious, patient person, see if he doesn't meet you there. James promises that we have a God that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Let's test Jesus in that this week. Let's be people who seek God more and more. We're gonna have countless opportunities In that, we're going to have countless opportunities to show brotherly love. And in all things, we need to be people who remember Jesus is coming back soon. That when I see injustice, I know I have a God who can handle it. That I can forgive because I have a God who's forgiven me and he's coming back soon. I can be generous because I have a God who's been generous with me and he'll be here soon. So Jesus, we're so thankful that we get to be people of that kind of hope. I pray that you will empower us, that you will convict us, that you will move us to do the things that your word tells us to do, to be people who are holy, who are set apart from the rest of culture, that stands up for what is right, that sharpens other believers, and then that we also be people who allow room for us to recognize that we see things darkly right now. And I pray that We wouldn't be people who would be overly focused about specks in other people's eyes while we have a log in our own. Jesus, please cleanse us of that log. Jesus, please help us to pursue you in purity and in holiness so that outsiders, when they look at us, they'd have nothing to condemn your church on. But that we'd be a group of people who are compelling that others want to go, I want what they have. I want the joy that they have. I want the access that they have. I want that when they encounter death and difficulty and hard times, they have this abounding joy in them because we have a God who loves us so much. He would give his own son for us. He's not gonna withhold any good thing from us. Jesus, thank you for that promise. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen, I can hear your kids. You need to go rescue them.